Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this month, our guest is <laughs> theatrical powerhouse Jonathan Dorf. For those of you who don't or are not familiar with Jonathan, he is a playwright, a screenwriter, script consultant, he's a teacher, a lecturer, he's the co-chair of the Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights. He has over 40 plays in his canon and has been produced over, get this, 1,500 times. Where has he been produced? Well, let's see. Every U.S. state, as well as Canada, Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, they need to put up a theater in Antarctica just for him. Uh, We figured, why not? Let's start off with the obvious question. How have you managed to get produced so often and so everywhere? You know, I mean, a lot of it is is publishers and then... um you know, there's a thread that came up on official playwrights of Facebook uh, a couple days ago, and somebody tagged me in. I guess my name was taken in vain, as they say. Hmm. And, um, you know, just talking about, um, like, what you do, because I think a lot of playwrights think that when they get published that their marketing stops, like that somehow it's in the hands of the publisher. Um, And I have kind of an interesting perspective because I sit on both sides because uh, I sort of accidentally became a publisher. And um, it's funny that that Youth Plays really started. It was just the three of us uh, and we found a a good URL, youthplays.com, and we thought this is a way to advertise our stuff for young people. And then it kind of snowballed and now we represent something like 400 plays. Um, But – you know, I think that as a playwright, um, you know, for example, Playscripts, which has been a great publisher for me, um, you know, and they've been responsible for a lot of, of those productions, um, you know, they really kind of cornered the market on on school plays, especially those sort of one acts is kind of their, their wheelhouse. And usually, though, what I do is I try to contact the people who are producing my plays and build relationships. I also teach at a lot of conferences, um, you know, high school theater festivals. I'm going right. to the International Thespian Festival in June uh, to teach uh, a dozen workshops. I was in Florida adjudicating. And, and what was cool is in Florida, uh, I was adjudicating for their, their playwriting competition, but Playscripts was also their selling. And so what I would do is I would go hang out at their table and – you know, just being a playwright, uh, when a publisher is at a conference and you can go spend time with them, uh, not only do you get to know the people who are, uh, you know, helping promote your work, but you're helping promote your work. Um, and, and so just spending time at the table, offering to sign scripts of mine that people buy, uh, it's a great way to, uh, to help get your stuff out there. Uh, but I also do, I keep an email list, uh, I do periodic emails to the people on my list, not only telling them about new plays, and I'll, I'll offer free scripts. So uh, this play that I'm reading tonight, for example, uh, which is called Me, My Selfie, and I. <laughs> I love and, that. Uh, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm, I'm excited about the title. We'll see uh, after tonight how excited I am about the play. But um, <laughs> it's getting there. It's, it's, it's just – it's been a very complicated um, – sort of challenging piece to do. Um, so hopefully it'll eventually, I think will come out on the other side. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually the people on my list will get an opportunity to get a free copy of that. And I usually also send out, I'll have a monologue of the month or, or, you know, whatever, maybe it's monologue of the every other month. Um, and I'll have a playwriting tip in there. And so I try to create a little value added, uh, for the people who are, um, 
my subscribers. And it's a great way and uh, just to, to get a new piece sort of buzzing in people's ears. And hopefully, you know, if you send out, um, you know, 40 free copies, uh, a few of those will turn into productions. Um, you know, it's, it's the way I usually look for premieres of plays. Um, so I think that, that, in general, the way to get those productions is, uh, as a playwright, you have to be very proactive and you have to be a marketing partner for the publisher uh, and not just assume that once it's published, your job is done because the publisher's job is really more to promote the brand. It's not that they won't do anything for your individual play. They will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at Youth Plays, we... Uh, you know, we have our uh, our email list. We have our Twitter feed. We, um, you know, different things like that that can promote a play. But still, we bring them to conferences. But at the end of the day, the playwright really needs to help push that play because otherwise, it's one of several hundred. Exactly, and most playwrights. I'm gonna I'm gonna go off on a limb here and generalize. Most playwrights are just playwrights. They write. They they <clears throat> send it out. They they find all the listings. And mm -hmm. they spend a lot of time doing the emails. Since we don't have to do paper copies that much anymore, thank God. Uh, right. <laughs> yes. Um, that, that was just, I spent a fortune at the post office. They loved we it. We all did. Uh, <laughs> so let me, let me double this question up. How many scripts do you have that are active at the moment that you're sending out or working with in your, in your roster and... How does a playwright who is primarily an artist learn the business side of promoting their own work? Where does that come from? Who's going to teach them this? You know, it's unfortunately something that doesn't really get taught much. Um, you know, I mean, I went to graduate school and, and got an MFA in playwriting at, at UCLA. And that wasn't really something that was taught there. Um, you know, most of those schools are focusing on the craft. Uh, sometimes when I go to um, thespian festivals, I actually teach a business of playwriting workshop. It's called Practical Playwriting. And I kind of wish that I could teach it everywhere because I think that playwrights really need instruction in it because it, it doesn't necessarily come naturally to most people. And, you know, the internet is a good thing in that it's allowed a certain amount of sharing of information about how to do these things. And this thread on official playwrights of Facebook, where I was talking about the things that I did, I think was a good example of some information getting out there, but how many people are actually looking at that thread? Uh, and there's, you know, thousands of playwrights out there who aren't. Um, so, I think all playwrights should probably hire me to consult for them and teach them how to do it, um, which I actually do. And in fact, I, I do. I mean, I do mostly consulting on actual scripts, but uh, sometimes people will, will hire you to um, just educate them about how this all works, uh, because you can't just send emails um, you know, submitting your play. I mean, that's that's certainly a step in the process, but at right. some point, uh, the process becomes much larger than that. Um, in terms of my own work, um, you know, I lose. I have, I think, forty some plays, um, maybe somewhere around there, and um, you know, a lot of those are published. We're, we're talking and, full length, ten minutes, musicals. Yeah, everything. Minutes. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I, I think I counted at one point not too long ago, and I feel like forty-five or so was the number floating around. Um, 
And, you know, there's some of those, obviously, that you're not spending a lot of time on. You know, they kind of sit there. I have a play uh, called Ben that I love uh, and that, that, you know, had been a finalist for various things. And But it's one of those, it's a cast of seven. It's kind of a professional production kind of piece. And because I have um, gotten so sort of intensely focused in writing for young people, um, my marketing capital has to be spent elsewhere. Right. And so uh, I would love for somebody to do it. I think it's a cool piece. It's actually a piece that I wrote when I was at Harvard and then I've kind of rewritten it. And uh, sort of as a funny story, the guy who directed the original production at Harvard, I guess the workshop, uh, was Scott Schwartz, um, who's gone on to become quite a successful director, you know, Broadway, off-Broadway, national tours, all kinds of things. I mean, Scott is, um, you know, one of the best directors probably working now Um, and so I would love for him he's actually the artistic director I think at um, is it Bay Street Um, and God I would love for Scott to do it now but the problem is of course seven in a professional season you know that's that's a large cast these days yes it is Um, a lot of us are writing for smaller casts Uh, oh yeah except me my last play has 11 I don't know what went wrong with me I hope there's a whole lot of doubling. We were actually talking about that. Yes. (laughs) Um, You know, so I think that that for me, I'm mostly focused on those plays for young people. Um, You know, and there's there's several plays in my particular catalog that have done the heavy lifting for me. Um, You know, 4 a.m., which is my most produced piece, which has been done over 300 times on its own. Uh, My bullying play, Thank You for Flushing My Head in the Toilet and Other Rarely Used Expressions. Uh, You know, things like Harry's Hotter at Twilight, Aftermath, uh, Dear Chuck. Um, so you have a, a certain number of pieces that, that really, um, you know, get out there. Then you have your, um, labor of love pieces that, um, don't get quite as many productions sometimes just because, um, you know, of the demands of the play sure. or the fact that they're not, um, you know, fun comedies or, or not that actually most of the ones that I just named were fun comedies. Harry's Hotter at Twilight is or High School Non-Musical is a fun comedy. But uh, one of the plays that I'm, I'm most proud of um, that I've tried to do quite a bit of marketing work on is uh, Rumors of Polar Bears, which has a one-act version, which is at Play Scripts, and a full-length version at Youth Plays. And it's kind of an epic, uh, especially the, the full-length version, um, sort of the epic journey of these teens who are surviving in the aftermath of a climate event. And it has a little bit of a Mad Max vibe to it. And I actually am really, really proud of that one. And it's one of my favorite plays of mine. And, uh, and it's gotten a number of productions. In fact, it had a really lovely production in Australia. Uh, last summer, or I guess it Which was last winter. Makes winter. the Mad Max thing very relevant. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, and, and it's just kind of the, the vibe of that whole world. And I kind of wanted to try to create this, um, you know, sort of very different, um, somewhat poetic world um, for these characters to, to be living in. And uh, you know, so you alternate between, I think, your pieces that you think are going to be somewhat commercial, and your pieces that are going to, you just need to write. So you're basically. Uh, you're leaving behind sounds like you're leaving behind certain plays that you really want to see done in favor of those that are much more marketable at this particular point you um yeah it's not 
the problem is, I guess that there's there's you know only 24 hours in a day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there are plays. I mean, at this point, 4 a.m. largely promotes itself, but I still do. You know, when I send out my newsletters, uh, one of the sections of it is sort of here are some great plays available, and so I don't always hit the same group. Sometimes I'll focus on 10 minute plays, for example, which is a form that I really enjoy working on and I will uh, you know promote some of them but a lot of times people are looking for um, you know we'll say flexible cast one acts and so uh, there's certain plays that tend to cycle around in that group uh, and and so you you do have to make choices it's not so much that you're um, you know I like to think of it and not that I'm leaving them behind so much as I'm carrying certain others forward. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Do you have a day job? Um, no, I, um, I, I, well, I wear a lot of different hats. So I, um, obviously playwright and occasional screenwriter. And, uh, I'm wondering, you you sound like the busiest person on the place of the planet doing all this marketing and gosh knows when you have time for writing, let alone pulling money into the house. Well, so, I mean, obviously, you know, the the hope with the marketing of some of these plays, you know, is that the the royalties, uh, you know, they do help take care of some income, Uh, you know, and and, and people forget the school market is actually, you know, one of the largest markets out there and and you make it more in volume. It's not like you're going to have an individual production that's going to run for 60 performances uh, in a, you know, off-Broadway theater where you're getting these tremendous royalties. But the hope is that you'll have, you know, X number of productions. Um, But in addition to, um, you know, my own playwriting, obviously I have Youth Plays, the publishing company, which is, uh, you know, sort of gradually been growing uh, both in terms of the size of catalog and in terms of revenue. Um, and we're in the middle of, uh, hopefully, we'll be launching a, an, a major update to our website, which I think will really help. And uh, first phase of that, hopefully, fingers crossed for June. We've had a lot of setbacks with that, so I, I don't like to definitively speculate, um, sure. but, but hopefully soon. Uh, then I also do script consulting. In fact, I have two that I'm, I'm consulting on right now. And actually a third one just came in last night and I have no idea when I'm going to get it. Normally I try to turn them around in three weeks and I'm, I'm shooting a short film in Philadelphia in um, just over a week and a half. And so, um, we'll not be touching that until, uh, after the film is shot. Uh, and then I also teach, uh, playwriting online, um, for, um, screenwriters university so I have an introduction to playwriting with them, and I teach that almost every month. Um, and, and so um, you, know, you can go to screenwritersuniversity.com, and you can look for the intro to playwriting class. And I'm, I'm hoping eventually I want to offer a periodic um, you know, writing for young audiences class with them as well and uh, you know, do that once or twice a year because it's a, uh, it's a niche market, but it's an, a market that more playwrights should look at and consider because it's actually a place where you can can write these huge cast shows and you can actually get your work done. It's, it's one of the things that frustrates me about a lot of playwrights is that they are forever chasing after this holy grail that they're going to have this play and it's this, you know, their magnum opus and they're mm. finally going to get it produced and they've, you know, they've had a reading of it somewhere and they're still chasing and chasing. And I'm thinking you could write a play for the school market. If it's good, you know, you might get 10 or 15 or 20 productions of it in a year, or maybe you'll get a hundred if it's, you know, you get really lucky. And, um, 
and people don't do that. And it's, How does it's one an, write for the youth market? What's the difference between writing for your magnum opus market, let's say the adult market, the, 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 the off-Broadway market, uh, and writing for you know, high schoolers? So, I mean, there are some key differences, obviously, you know, one of them we kind of touched on earlier that, um, you know, for a show for off-Broadway or, broad, you know, or any of those, you know, sort of lort theaters, uh, you're looking at a really small cast yes. and, uh, and generally adult concerns, too. Uh, it's not to say that they can't be interesting to teens, but, uh, you know, usually they're adult characters. There might be a younger character in there, but but mostly not. If you look at what's getting done, um, you know, they're mostly – you know, either 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, or even older. Um, right. And, and so it's a different, um, you know, it's a different cast and casting. You know, schools, your schools are generally looking for uh, flexible to large casts with lots of women. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one of the ways to do it, I write a lot of very flexible casts. So right. me, myself, and I, for example, uh, my goal is that it can be done with as few as eight people, but it can probably be done with as many as, as 50 or more. Wow. And so um, and the same with 4 a.m. 4 a.m., you can do it with as few as six. And people will do it, you know, sometimes with 20 or 30. And creating that flexibility means that it can be done in schools of all sizes, um, you know, or youth theaters. It gives you a lot of, of room um, to play around with your casting. So if you have a very sure. small group, it doesn't matter. Uh, you just have more doubling, especially because a lot of my pieces that I've been doing for young people are sort of vignette style where you have a lot of short scenes that are sort of thematically connected. Um, you know, obviously when you're writing for young people, uh, you probably don't want to be dropping the F-bomb, exactly. um, you know, things like that. So, so you have to be a little mindful to language and adult situations. Um, you know, it's not that you can't address some of these topics, but you have to do it in a sensitive way. Right. And, you know, think about, especially at schools, a lot of times it might be a situation where the younger siblings are coming to the shows. And, and so mm -hmm. you just need to think about Family um, audiences in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're competition pieces, and they don't mind a little bit of edge to it. Uh, but it's, it's. <clears throat> I think that what I've discovered in the school market is there's certain areas where it's okay to be edgy, and there's certain areas where it's not. Um, one of my plays that that sometimes has trouble finding uh, productions, um, and it, it gets it's, it gets a, a decent number, but uh, the locker next to mine, um, which is about teen suicide. Uh, very specifically, and, and 4AM deals with it a little bit, but it's it not not in that the whole play is about sure. it. And Locker Next to Mine is very much about this. It's about um, this school that has turned itself inside out in, in mourning this uh, popular girl um, who died in a uh, an automobile accident. And in the meantime, um, there's a kid who commits suicide, and nobody talks about it. And um, it was it was inspired actually by true events. Uh, I was actually uh, working with a school up in the Mojave Desert um, in California, and um, they were in rehearsal for "Thank You for Flushing My Head in the Toilet." And um, one of the things that came up in their discussions was that their um, 
they had had something similar. And in fact, I, I visited them and um, I saw the marketing. There was, you know, the, the death of this popular kid. I think the kid had died in an off-roading accident. And there were, uh, you know, those little wristbands and T-shirts. I mean, it had become like this whole marketing bonanza, which to me was incredibly bizarre. Uh, and yet uh, they had, there had been spectacles out of the things that we have to deal with. Right. Um, and, and what was so interesting about it, though, is is that this other thing, the suicide, the school had really kind of put the, the kibosh on, on wanting to talk about it at all. And so the kids, um, their discussions in working on, on Thank You for Flushing, uh, it came up in their discussions. And, and they finally got to talk about this thing that they felt they all needed to talk about. And so I wrote a play um, about that. And sometimes you get uh, – in fact, it was originally – it was commissioned by the school on Long Island um, – and they just, you know, the, the directive that I was given was about 90 minutes. It should be able to accommodate. I think they wanted about 28 people and uh, a drama. Yeah. And so I had nothing other than that to go on, which – so this is what I ended up with. And they couldn't do it um, because they had had, um, you know, some recent deaths um, – wasn't suicide. I think it was actually it was the automobile accident. And the, you know the problem, unfortunately, is that teenagers get into auto accidents. So um, you know, there are a lot of they do because yeah. they think they're all going to live forever and they love taking chances and impressing their friends. Right, and they're not the most experienced drivers at that exactly. point. Exactly, and, yeah. and so um, you know, unfortunately, what happened is they had some siblings of the you know the people who had died who were still in the school, actually even in the class, and so they, um, as much as they wanted to do it, they actually gave the premiere rights. Uh, they gifted them to a school in Alabama that uh, that did the first production of it, and uh, you know that's one where uh, I will sometimes hear that people are really interested, except we can't do it right now. Because because dot, dot, dot. Right. Uh, and, and so that happens. Uh, you know, that one and, uh, you know, thank you for flushing occasionally gets a certain amount of. Let me ask uh, you this. Back. You're, you're an adult male. Mm-hmm. How old are you? Do you mind? I am 46. Is there a, do you find, and if there is, how do you bridge it? A generation gap between being a 46 year old adult writing for successfully writing for an audience of high schoolers. We're talking perspective. We're talking language. We're talking point of view. Your plays go out, they get done. How do you make that, that, that bridge gap? It's, you know, it probably will get more challenging the older I get. But, um, but you know, there are a lot of people who are writing, uh, you know, really successful, for example, YA novels. And, uh, you know, and they're not, they're not that age. Uh, I think that for me, and I think this is kind of the secret to good writing in general, um, it's about understanding the, the rhythm of speech. And, and I also get to spend a, a certain amount of time with high school students because I do uh, you know, a lot of these workshops. And so uh, even though I'm not – I actually spent six years in classrooms teaching both high school and middle school back in the, in the day. Uh, but now I do it more sporadically. Uh, but I still get to have conversations with teenagers and um, you know, certainly before any play sort of goes out there, yeah. um, it's going to get – uh, a vetting by teens. I mean, we'll have that, that, you know, before I publish anything, uh, there's always a, uh, 
you know, first production, with the occasional exception of I've had a couple of uh, short pieces which um, were written for that market and they were sort of commissioned to be in anthologies. Um, and I had readings with actors who were, you know, sort of recent college grads who are still kind of in that, you know, that, that overall age range. I mean, they're, you know, sort of early 20-somethings. Hmm. Um, and, and so, but I think always making sure that you vet it with people who are, are somewhere in and around that age group. And I think that the rhythm of the dialogue is, is really important. And, and so what I've tried to, to keep in my head is that certain sense of, of rhythm um, of how people speak. And, you know, I mean, uh, slang is going to come and go. And, and I think that in general, you have to avoid it um, because well, what sounds so timely. I mean, fat right. is no longer used. Groovy has been gone for about 50 years. And right. rad. does anybody say rad anymore? No. You know, what's interesting is that gnarly has kind of come back, but it's come back differently because I feel like gnarly used to be kind of good in the 80s. And now gnarly is kind of like gross. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting that, that occasionally, um, you know, things do cycle back. But, uh, you know, but I think that the problem is that the more um, time specific and I actually will write plays where I will say um, – you know, maybe like Instagram, and then I will have in brackets or the social media, you know, phenomenon of the moment, so that uh, groups can add whatever their, uh, you know, the appropriate language is. Right. And insert proper euphemism here. Yeah, I mean, basically, that's, yeah. um, you know, that's what you're doing. And so, um, you know, I don't do that. It's more with sort of specific things of products or, sure. or things yeah. like that. But, um, you know, but I, I think that, that in general to me, and when I teach playwriting, um, it is all about the um, the rhythm of the language. And, you know, learning how to punctuate. I teach, you know, when I teach workshops, I teach people that punctuation is really how you win when it comes to writing good dialogue. And, and more people need to understand that because everything has a rhythm. Right. Um, you know, so they say that Mamet, you know, a lot of times they talk about Mamet and they say his writing sounds so real. And it's not real at all. But what Mamet is so good at is he's good at understanding the rhythm of real yes. speech. It's remarkable. I did American Buffalo a number of years ago, and I fell in love with the entire rhythm of the of, mm -hmm. of teaching Donnie's back and forth. And while it didn't seem real on the page at all, once we started doing it, it became perfectly natural. Yeah, it's. Um, I saw a really good production of that play uh, a couple years ago, and it's actually much funnier than I thought. It oh was God, on the page. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really hilarious uh, once you get it up on its feet, and that rhythm is is so vibrant and and um, you know I think for me that is in trying to stay in that teen world. Obviously, you have to write uh, you know find things that concern them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that's really important. So at youth plays occasionally we'll get somebody who obviously didn't spend any time on our website, and they'll send us something about you know thirty or forty somethings in a relationship and on the verge of divorce, and I'm just thinking now why would we possibly publish that play um <laughs> and and i mean that's the other thing with playwrights always somebody who doesn't read the rules well you know they um i mean that's that's one of those things that you get that periodically we actually get that more often than we might think hmm. uh, 
or might hope for is that people not really spending time getting to know the market. And I think that's true of any opportunity. As a playwright, you really have to research it and make sure that it's the right opportunity because you're sending your script in and that may only take you X number of minutes. But on the other end, somebody has to process that. Right. Somebody has to you know, read that or maybe they're just going to take, you know, in that case, maybe they're going to look at it for five minutes. And they're going to say, this is ridiculous. We're not actually going to waste our time reading it, but they still have to write you back. So um, for me, I think with any opportunity and it's sort of advice for playwrights, it's you've got to be respectful of people's time. And so you want to make sure, um, you know, that every opportunity you submit for is one that you are at least somewhere on the dance floor. Yep. What's the first play you ever saw? You know, that is a good question. Um, it was at least the first play that I can remember seeing. Um, my parents used to take me to Broadway uh, because we lived – I grew up near Philadelphia and uh, we would occasionally go in. And so I remember falling asleep and I want to say that it might have been like either Henry the Fourth. It was like one of those um, – it was some kind of a Shakespeare history I think that I remember. Um, other plays that I remember from that very, very early period, I know I saw Greece. And I know I saw right. Dracula with Frank Langella. Ah, I saw that with Raul Julia. Mm. Yeah. So, so those were when I was, you know, I must have been very, very young. And I know I saw Cats very, very early. Yeah, that <laughs> one I missed. I think the first one I saw was our, our school took us to see a, a something called The Me That Nobody Knows. I've heard of that. Yeah. It, I, don't, it, I know it was all teenagers and it had to do with issues. I barely remember it because it was about 130 years ago. But uh, I do know that everybody all of a sudden, you know, sat up when the F-bomb was dropped, which I'd never really heard in a public performance before. I think I was in like fourth grade or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it was it was uh, an interesting experience. So why did you start writing plays uh, of all things? So I was I was in high school and I was the high school newspaper editor. Uh, this is at Marple Newtown Senior High and uh, in in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania. And uh, Tom Williams, uh, who was a, a dear friend who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, um, he was the newspaper advisor. And Tom was great, and he he I mean, kids of all you know, random varieties who you wouldn't think would ever hang out together kind of came and hung out in the Mar newsroom. And Tom and I got to be pretty close because I was actually editor for two and a half years of the paper. And, um, you know, we wrote some songs together. I had been writing poetry before that. I had dabbled in a little short story writing. And at one point he said to me, well, you've written everything else. Why don't you try writing a play? Because he had written some plays and, and had, a, you know, I guess a little success with that. And, um, so I wrote a play uh, junior year in high school. It was called The Storm. It was a, uh, a Eugene O'Neill ripoff. It was kind of like <laughs> my one-act version of The Iceman Cometh. Is this and, all stage directions and about four lines of dialogue? Uh, it wasn't quite that bad. But, okay. uh, you know, people actually liked it. Uh, it was done – it was, I think – at least they claim it was the first student-written play done in the uh, the school's one-act festival, or maybe at least the first one that anyone could remember. Um, and, um, you know, people enjoyed it, and I got some nice feedback on it. I mean, now I look back at it in kind of horror, but, I mean, I was 17. And um, I know that some of the 17-year-olds that we read in um, the Young Playwrights Contest that we run for youth plays were, are much better writers than I was at that time. Um, 
they probably have been writing a little bit longer. And so I wrote another play the uh, the next year, which was basically a, a no exit ripoff. Mm. Uh, I was kind of working my way through various people that I could, um, you know, appropriate from. Yeah, well, parrot their styles, certainly. You know, so I went from reading a lot of O'Neill, and then I was reading a lot of Absurdus. And um, so it was kind of like um, Sartre meets Ionesco. Um, that sounds like and, fun. <clears throat> you know, it could have been. It wasn't, I don't think, the best play in the world. But then, um, you know, when I went to Harvard, um, you know, Harvard doesn't have a um, – always didn't. I still think they don't. Um, not really an organized theater department. And so production is kind of a free-for-all, which actually turned out to be a really good thing because a lot of times you go to a school uh, with an organized theater department and you can do what the department is doing and that's about it. And it kind of choked off sort of extra departmental activities. Mm. So because there was no apart- uh, department to really take up all the spaces, you had all these spaces. And so for us, a, a slow semester was probably about 25 productions and a busy one might be as many as 40. And they were all student uh, directed and produced and a number of them were student written. And so I probably wrote something like 14 different plays that I produced. Wow. Uh, you know, while I was there or that got produced. And so it was a great incubator. Did you find that uh, it came easy to you? Um, yeah, you know, it was great. Or natural. Uh, Let's not say easy. Let's just say natural. It was, it was natural. And I also had the time. Um, I remember writing um, a piece that we, that is now called Plays End. And it was actually one of my best. I got a great little review from the, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, when it was done, it was done. It was called Foreplay at the time. And it was done in a, a bill of, um, uh, of one acts at the Brick Playhouse in Philly years ago. And uh, that was a piece that I wrote pretty much in one day um, at school. And it was because, you know, somebody was making your food for you. Uh, if you didn't have a class or, you know, it was like a weekend, I remember, and the internet wasn't the same distraction, you know, back in the early 90s. And so you turned your phone off. You didn't really have cell phones yet. Mm. Uh, you turned your phone off and I just wrote. And, you know, so I could do 20 pages in a day. I remember writing a screenplay, 100-page screenplay in seven days, um, which was I just sort of locked in and did it because you just didn't have the responsibilities. I mean, now it's like, um, you know, I've got to go pick up scripts for the reading. I've got to go make this curry I'm making for the actors. creeps in, yes. It's it's hard managing one's time when – you really need to get to the paper and put this stuff down because who knows, you, you, you could lose an inspiration. You could lose a, an epiphany somewhere and it's hard to get those moments back. Yeah. I try to, uh, to always have sort of a notepad somewhere nearby so that I, I even bring one to the gym. I actually get, uh, when I go to the gym, I'll start on the recumbent bike and I'll do 10 minutes on the recumbent bike as a warm up, And I will typically have, uh, my pad, and I will um, – sometimes I will do some writing. Uh, sometimes I'm just making to-do lists for the rest of the day but mm-hmm. uh, or I'm doing reading. But uh, a lot of times I will actually write. Um, I find for me the best times to write are actually um, – I write in bed um, a fair amount. 
um, usually like right as I'm going to bed because I find that somehow your body is more relaxed and your uh, your mind is sort of able to go to those places that you need to access in order to to sort of be those characters. And uh, so I get some of my best work done um, in bed before I go to sleep. And then you kind of write until your eyes are about ready to, you know, you're just not quite, you realize that you're almost nodding off and then you just put the pad down. Uh, And at least it's good because it kind of keeps it in your head and allows it to incubate overnight while you're sleeping. So, um, you know, but it is, it is truly a challenge uh, and I miss those days um, you know, and I wish I do a lot of different things. I wish that eventually I would be able to thin out some of those, um, mm. and, and really maybe just do the writing and, and maybe have someone else, um, you know, do the brunt of the work with the publishing, for example, um, just so that I could really just write new things. Cause uh, you know, just as a practical level, when I write a new play, I tend to make more money from that than, the other sort of ancillary things that I do, right. but the problem is finding the time to do it. Finding the time is hard. I generally, uh, I, I dictate into my iPhone when I when I don't have access to a computer. I do most of my writing in a coffee shop because I, I like to hear the voices around me, mm-hmm. and I like to hear uh, the the life of society and humanity. And for me, it's I hear the emotion, which helps me put. You know, it keeps me reminded of the ups and downs of the rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like like you know, if I'm at the gym or I'm I'm in the car, I just dictate into the iPhone. I've got one of these little round the neck kind of earbud things. Uh, oh, that's useful. Yeah, which works really really well. Um, let's kick over back to business for a moment because we just can't seem to get done with the whole business side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one sheet royalties, the rights and royalties one sheet that you produced mm-hmm. a couple of months ago. I'm assuming it's a couple of months ago. That's when I saw it. Yeah, about. Uh, yeah. It's it it goes through why are royalties important and rules and regulations about how to you know legally and appropriately manage getting a play per uh, for production. What kicked you into into finally putting this out and. In the past couple of years, I've noticed around the whole playwriting community, everything from the Dramatist Guild, um, you know, Bill of Rights, we're starting to codify what I think a profession has been languishing somewhere in the Wild West frontier with very few ways to guide people. You know, it's all of a sudden people are starting to pay more attention to the rules and regulations and the legalities of the profession. Yeah, I think what well, was always there in the, in the Bill of Rights, uh, you know, the Guild's Bill of Rights has, has actually been around for a little while, but it's it's become more uh, – they are certainly doing a better job of promoting it in the last couple of years uh, because I think for a while it was kind of there and it was, you know, sort of just sitting in a corner. Um, I think that for me – you know, I mean, I I get infringed upon pretty regularly. Um, it's actually been it's been a, a couple months since my last infringement, um, mm. <laughs> which is kind of remarkable because it usually isn't. Uh, I maybe feel it like just we're means in confession. I, <clears throat> yeah, you know, it, it may just be because I haven't had the time to search as thoroughly. Um, 
I mean, 4AM has had, you know, at least a, a dozen productions. It actually won the uh, the big interschool drama competition uh, in Sri Lanka, and it turned out that they had not actually paid the rights and royalties. Um, you know, and that eventually got sorted out. But, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, you have, especially in the school world, you have people who are not necessarily experts on these things. You know, it could be the English teacher mm-hmm. who's doing it. And also the fact that they don't necessarily teach these things, even in drama programs in the same way uh, you know that in my MFA program nobody taught me how to market myself there are these other elements these business elements that um, you know people are not taught and yes even though every script has this sort of information in the front you know that nobody reads that stuff unfortunately uh, you know there's this sort of whole copyright pages that that published plays have. And I've just seen a lot of, um, I don't know whether it was a bump in infringements, certainly a bump in questions about it. And so I thought, all right, I don't see anywhere um, an actual one sheet. I mean, Samuel French has a really good sort of white paper on it, but it's multiple pages. And unfortunately, I mean, to be honest, um, I'm going to read through all that. Yeah, you're not going to, you're going to tune it out. So I thought if I could get most of this on one page um, and it's, it's, targeted more at schools, but uh, I think there's a lot of things that apply to everyone. I mean, certainly the things about productions apply to everyone. And so the idea is let's just try to start making this information uh, more available. I think that one of the problems with the internet, and the internet is a great thing in a lot of ways because it's great. You can search your infringements. It's great to promote your work. Um, but certainly in the younger generations, there is a sense that if it's on the internet, it's free and available yeah. to anyone. Mm-hmm. And so – um, you know, just trying to use the the internet to balance that thought, and uh, it's not free. It's not available to anyone. Just because it's there, you still have to ask. And so, I wanted to try to create something super succinct. And so, I went back and forth, um, you know, with a lot of teachers and other theater friends, and and getting feedback and and revising constantly. And, and you're never going to make everybody happy. There's always something that, you know, you wish you could include, right. but you don't want it to be an eight point font that nobody can read. And you don't want it to be multiple pages because then nobody will read them. So, exactly. um, this was my best, I think we're on version seven now, uh, my best attempt to distill all of that. Um, you know, and a lot of these things also came from experiences that I've had, uh, you know, on the publishing side of things. Um, so it, it's kind of speaking from all of those realms of experience and as co-chair of the Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights. And, and you know, I've just, I kind of have my, my finger in a lot of different pies. Sure. And, and so it's allowed me to taste a lot of different pies and to, to look at some different perspectives. And, and so hopefully uh, this is something that a teacher or a theater maker can use. And, um, you know, it's, it's obviously there are going to be situations that are going to be outside of this, but, but by and large to have a sense of, all right, I want to produce a play. What do I do? Well, this tells me how to start. Okay, so I'm an English teacher in in Omaha somewhere. How do I find this sheet? Um, So it – I've sort of been distributing it around. Uh, It's going to be going up on produceaplay.com, which is a website that uh, we created some years ago. And it is a sort of how to produce plays. Uh, And I've also been working on distributing it to, um, you know, various teachers groups. Mm Mm-hmm. 
you know, and and so like it's certainly if you're on the uh, the schooltheaterorg dot website, which is the, the Educational Theater Association website. Uh, at one point, I uploaded it, um, and so I've uploaded it into some of the teachers' uh, Facebook groups. Um, so I think that uh, you know produceaplay.com will, will be the best, and that actually should be going up pretty soon. Uh, but you know, hopefully it'll be around. And, and what I would love eventually to do is to get this out to um, you know sort of the national. Uh, I forget the exact name of it, but there's basically a national association of administrators, and because I think the education needs to start there. Sure. Because yeah. if they know what's allowed, then if there's a production going on at their school, they can say, "Hey, mm-hmm. did you?" do your due diligence on this. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, seems, that seems like the best way of doing it. You mentioned the Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights. We've only got a few minutes left, so I want sure. to get this in. I have one more question besides that. Um, Los Angeles is a huge city. Huge. It is. Um, <clears throat> and so much good stuff, theater-wise, comes out of it. Who is the Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights? How many folks do you have there? And how long has it, uh, how long has it been around? So it's been around now. It was actually, I think it started in around 94. Um, it was kind of, it might have been even slightly earlier. It was kind of an outgrowth of the LA riots, actually. Uh, it was kind of the part of the creative community's response to that. Um, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 members. It, it, you know, sort of goes up, goes down. We've been kind of growing lately, uh, which is great. Um, you know, and the members are, it's interesting because even though we are, um, a service and support organization for playwrights in the greater Los Angeles area. We actually have members in probably a dozen other states. Uh, in fact, we even have a member now in New Zealand. And, you know, one of the things that we have that's appealing is we have an online script catalog. And so it's a way for playwrights to be able to market their work. And we have a number of uh, festivals, in fact, coming up in June. We have, um, we have a, we're participating in the Hollywood Fringe Festival. And we have a Pride Festival, which is for LGBT plays. Um, you know, we have various reading festivals. And so, so things, um, you know, that playwrights want to be part of. And, um, you know, so you don't don't need to uh, to live in Los Angeles uh, to be able to join, but um, you know it's it's a great organization. We actually had our, our we call it the Salon Saloon, uh, where we uh, we gather at someone's uh, living room, and um, you know obviously not the whole membership, uh, but last night right. there were about yeah. twenty people there, <laughs> it's which be was a big great. Room. Yeah, a huge living room, and so um, you know we had champagne and and bottled water and cheese and dessert, and uh, we talked about um, you know last. Last night's topic um, was about casting and, and to what extent uh, do you allow thoughts of casting to influence your writing and, and you know, to what extent do you need to do that. And we were talking about uh, non-traditional casting and, and issues of uh, gender fluidity and, and cast size and issues of race and casting. And it was a really great uh, discussion. Mm. And um, yeah, those, you know, so those each are month, all critical issues right there. I mean, especially yeah. with, with – <clears throat> gender and sexual identity these days, which Mm -hmm. is diversifying at light speed sometimes. It's been very interesting in the school market because you have a lot of kids who are not sort of binary in their genders anymore. And 
So dealing with that as a writer and, and, and even as a publisher and, and, you know, instead of saying, uh, you know, a role can be played by either gender. Now we're talking about gender flexible roles, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and trying to to stay ahead of that curve, uh, because, you know, with so many young people struggling with it, you don't want to make it harder for them, especially because theater is often kind of a haven for them. And so you yeah. want to make theater welcoming. So, uh, you know, the Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights and, and we're at LAPlaywrights.org. Uh, and we also have a Facebook page as well. And, uh, you know, it's certainly great for people who are in the L.A. area, but also for people who just want to connect with that, that sort of L.A. vibe, because L.A. is still a, a very vibrant, um, you know, source of new plays. Uh, as much as Actors' Equity has made it harder to get them on because of what they've done with the 99-seat plan, but that would be a discussion for a whole other day. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe I'll bring you back and we'll we'll go after equity. Uh, <laughs> well, not really go after, but we'll figure it out. Last question. If you could find a common thread in your work, and I know you've got over 40 plays, you've got this incredible canon – what moves you as a playwright to write? Is there something that you go for with the plays that you, is, is it an issue? Is it, is it a sympathy? Is it an idea? Is there anything that links them all together? You know, I would say it's certainly hard to link every single one. Right. There definitely are some common themes. I think that, that people searching for connection, for example, uh, you know, or belonging, um, you know, I think that those exist in, in different ways. You know, 4AM is certainly, uh, you know, and, and it's it's sort of sequel. The Magic Hour are very much about connection, mm-hmm. um, you know, but a play, um, you know, I th- something like Me, Myself, and I, which is, is kind of in a way about connection because it's kind of about how we are – we're trying to create sort of a way that we fit in with other people. And, and our selfie is, uh, you know, because we create a selfie, it's not necessarily so much for ourselves, it's, it's for the consumption of others to mm-hmm. see it. Right. And so I think that, that how we fit in, in the worlds that we live in, I think is something that I'm always dealing with. I mean, Rumors of Polar Bears, which deals with kind of concepts of family. Uh, you know, so again, it's a different kind of connection. Uh, you know, can people who are not connected by blood still be connected? You know, how do you choose your, your family, so to speak? And so I think that that is often in my work. But then, you know, sometimes I will go out and, and you know, I'm certainly not going to say that Harry's Hotter at Twilight was about people searching for connection. It was, you know, definitely about me just wanting to have a good time, uh, you know, playing with, with Harry Potter and, and with Twilight and, and, you know, doing a parody. So, um, you know, but I think in the serious pieces, you know, certainly that is, is an issue, uh, you know, that issue of connection that, that comes up. But, you know, I think every play is a, a new play. Hmm. And new characters, and and so I kind of like to think that uh, I'm not necessarily beating the same horse always. I'm hmm. beating multiple horses, though no horses are harmed in the writing of my plays. I must say that. Um, <laughs> well, but I'd, I'd uh, say the yeah. connection and belonging are perfect topics for the younger audiences. Yeah, I I think so because I think that we're all trying to figure out how we fit. You know, and certainly a play like Dear Chuck. Uh, you know, which is about how teens are caught between being children and adults, and they are searching for that that moment of understanding and sort of who they are. And so I think that a lot of times I have characters who are trying to figure out who they are and how they fit. And, uh, you know, it, it is an important issue 
for uh, that age group. Jonathan Dorf, it has been a great pleasure, and I wish we had about 12 more hours to cover everything that you do uh, as far as writing and playwriting and publishing. Um, it's it's daunting looking at, at the record that you've accumulated. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Tell us how we can find out more about you. So the best way to find me uh, is on my website, which is jonathandorf.com. And uh, you can also find me. I have a Facebook uh, fan page, so you can find me there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at John Playwright. So those are all great ways to connect with me. Cool. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you like what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater that we haven't covered yet, or know of someone else in the theater who'd make some really good chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our intro and outro music is Surf Far, Surf Good by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. Yeah.